millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify and Starship Sofa. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 143. I'm your host, Nicholas seaton Clark, and this episode will be dropping today on January 31st, the final day of our current submissions window. Our thanks to everyone who sent us their fiction. It's been a pleasure to read it. If you haven't yet heard from us regarding the fate of your story, rest assured we'll be in touch by the end of February. We begin today's episode with Connection by Lynette Mejia, who writes science fiction, fantasy and horror prose and poetry from the middle of a deep, dark forest in the wilds of southern Louisiana. Her work has been nominated for the Riesling Award and the Million Writers Award, and you can find her online via the link in our show notes. It's read for us by Christopher Laid, a Leipzig-based orchestral conductor, pianist and English teacher by day and an avid reader by night. When not doing either of these four, you can usually find him listening to music, reading classical music blogs, riding his bike or trying to cook something Italian in his kitchen. Life goals include motorcycling through Europe on a Triumph Bonneville and owning a Bernese Mountain Dog, preferably at the same time. And now, Connection by Lynette Mejia. The magician wobbled a little bit on his bar stool. Ask me what I did for a living, he said. Somewhere deep inside of him, a small voice was shouting to shut up, that he sounded like a fool, but he ignored it. His plane was likely delayed until morning, anyhow. I already know what you are, she answered. Her pale skin seemed to shimmer a little in the murky atmosphere of the bar. He liked the way the dim light played on her features, rendering half of her in shadow. And what is that? His words were slurred. Was this his fourth whiskey or his fifth? You're a magician, she said, as if it were obvious. Was, he corrected, finishing off his drink. Then curiosity peaked, he asked, How did you know? She smiled. It's your hands, she said. Long fingers, very deft. Good bones. You have a lot of potential. He snorted. I've been in the business for more years than you've been alive, miss. I doubt there's much you could teach me. 
50 years of third-rate casino tricks and backyard birthday parties, she said. Is that really the magic you dreamed of as a boy? Of course not, he answered, hating her for saying it aloud. But it paid the bills. I had family to feed, something I'm sure you know nothing about. He motioned to the bartender, then pointed to his empty glass. But that's all over now. Then why are you here? she asked. He snorted. Because I've got a flight to catch, same as you, same as everyone. We've all got someplace else we want to be. Yes, she said. But why are you here, in between? In between what? She looked at him as if he were a child to whom she's had to explain some simple concept for the thousandth time. Why do you think airports are built where they are, she asked. He shrugged. Cheap real estate, I imagine? The chance for politicians to make a little extra graft on the side? No, she said impatiently, because they're hubs, William, liminal spaces, and not only for your kind. There are other ways to travel beside great, big, ridiculous metal eggs, you know. He blinked. I don't, actually. She turned on her bar stool to face him. Yes, you do, she said. You're a magician. Suddenly he felt ridiculous and overwhelmingly tired. What had possessed him to sit down next to this woman and start up a conversation? He'd come in just wanting to drink while he was waiting for his connection. Anything to keep from sitting there in those hard plastic seats along the concourse, watching tearful goodbyes and joyous reunions playing over and over again like a bad movie on an endless loop. I said I was a magician, he answered. Now I'm just old. If it wasn't for that storm out there, I'd be on a plane right now headed to Tucson to live with my daughter, at least until she gets tired of me and sends me to an old folks home. I was a magician, and I was a good one, goddammit. But that was then, and this is now. And right now there's nothing left of me that matters anymore. She swiveled back around and was quiet. For a few moments the two of them stared at the bottles arranged on shelves behind the bar. In the spaces between them he saw her image ripple like a mirage, the silvered glass reflecting her luminescent skin and glittering diamond-like eyes. For the first time he noticed that the noise of conversation and the clinking of glasses surrounding them had dwindled until it was barely audible, as if someone had turned down the volume knob on the whole world. He worried that he might be drunker than he thought, or, worse yet, passed out somewhere and dreaming. Why are you here? he asked, finally. Her voice reminded him of the gentle rustle of wind through the trees. I'm on a recruiting mission, after a fashion, she said. His heart began to ache inside his chest. He couldn't believe it, and yet he longed to, as a distant memory arose of his mother's voice before she died. It was the day she'd first discovered him searching for a rabbit inside an old mangy top hat he'd found at the back of her closet. They'd been fairy stories, then, about her family's connection to the Tuatha, stories meant to encourage a small boy's passion. How'd he dreamed of magic and all its possibilities, of changeling children spirited away to a land where no one grew sick and no one ever died. He'd waited for her, day after day, year after year, until the magic had become mere trickery and his memories of her face had grown faint and distant, like a dream of someone else's childhood. But I'm old, he said, his voice full of longing and regret. I'm already old. He bowed his head as hot tears threatened to spill onto his cheeks. In Tirnanog, no one is old, she said, taking his hand. And you were wrong, William Murphy. Much of you still matters. Much indeed.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Liminal spaces. The points between what was and what's next, where transformation takes place. It seems like we're all living in one big liminal space these days, and much of us still matters, now more than ever. Our next story is Star Spawn by Cyril Samsa. It placed in the top six of the International Eon Award Short Fiction Contest in 2014, and we are honoured to feature it on the Triple F. Cyril was born and raised in London, and for a while pretended to study zoology, though in actual fact he rarely left the obscure regions of the university library and has rarely come closer to doing any real science than various holiday jobs at the Natural History Museum. Since 1992, he has lived in Prague, where he shuffles students around the borders of the former Austria-Hungary and does his best to avoid the fate of his near namesake in the Kafka story. He's been hovering on the fringes of the science fiction world for much longer than is really sensible and has contributed reviews and articles to a wide variety of genre publications, such as Foundation, Locus, The Encyclopedia of Fantasy and Wormwood. His story credits include Darkness Rising, Here and Now, Starship Sofa, The World SF Blog and Electric Velocipede. His short story collection, Lost Cartographies, Tales of Another Europe, is available on Amazon and via select genre retailers. His story is read by Andrea Richardson, a British singer and actress with extensive stage and film performances to her name. She began narration and voiceover work in 2014, but enjoys using her existing skills in a different way. You can find Andrea online via the links in our show notes. And now, Starspawn by Cyril Samsa. So, if you're reading this, I guess you're a fan. And I don't have to do all the introductory bits about who or what Starspawn are, were, or why anyone should still be interested. And assuming you've clicked through here by accident, there's a nice write-up on Kill Your Pet Puppy and some more or less phantasmagorical bios on Wikipedia. Plus a discography, of course. That's not so bad. 
From which you've probably gathered, Starspawn were a band. In London. Some time ago. My editor's nodding as I record this, so now you know. The first time I saw Starspawn was in 1985. January or February, I expect. Perhaps early March. This was back in the days when British law still forbade the hoi polloi to dance on a Sunday. Really? People forget. It was a different century. There were still bomb sites from the Second World War in the poorer parts of town. And London Underground was still running trains from the 1930s. David Lynch shot the Elephant Man on location at Paddington Station, and it was no problem. Think about it. Anyway, thanks to this rather curious piece of Victorian legislation, a number of the more enterprising London venues got into the habit of offering Sunday night slots to up-and-coming bands who avoided dance beats, allowing them to exchange the limits of a seated venue for a chance of exposure. And, of course, most bands were only too glad of that. Starspawn had landed a spot at the King's Head in Islington, which was a bit of an odd choice, really. They were much more raucous than the acts they usually booked at this largely acoustic venue, and a good seven or eight years too young for the regulars. And judging by the first reactions, I thought the night was going to be a bust. Truth was, as I later learned, the venue's booking agent had given them the gig out of curiosity. This was Islington in the 1980s, after all, and Starspawn, with its female line-up and almost entirely female road crew, were gender pioneers. Musically, the venue is more a haven for old hippies and the new urban activist classes, the sort of people who still thought that organic muesli and entry-level politics in the London Labour Party were going to stop the Thatcherite yard sale. The loony left, in other words. Or, rather, to be more accurate, others' words, since this was really more the language of the lunatic right. The King's Head was where they went on their nights off. I could see at once that Starspawn wasn't what they were expecting. Four young women with big amps and an attitude. Moon, with her shockingly pale face and spiky black hair on lead. Dora, with her olive skin and coal-rimmed eyes on bass. Very obviously not English, and just as obviously very beautiful. Val and Bess holding down the rear with tinkly pink triangle earrings and well-muscled torsos. The only guy in their crew was Greenstreet, their sound engineer, whom Moon had known since O-Levels. And me, of course, if you want to look into the future. Though at that stage they hadn't been signed yet, so I didn't become their producer till later. That first evening, I was just on the lookout for a support act for my own band's upcoming tour of Germany. And I'd met Moon at her day job in the Earth Mysteries section of the old Compendium bookshop in Camden. So I sat in the audience and watched. Generally pleased by the sight of four attractive young women bouncing around on a podium and impressed, despite my somewhat disreputable thoughts, by the rapport between Moon and Dora. It normally takes years to develop something like that, and they could not have been much more than twenty. Either they had started very young, or they were exceptionally talented. Probably both, actually. I didn't really know all that much about Moon at the time we met. I'd heard that she came from Norfolk, and had grown up in some long-decayed market town called Maiden Harbour. She'd come to London to study, just as so many of us had, but she had lasted only a couple of terms. Dora and Green Street were school chums. She'd found Val and Bess at the Polytechnic of North London, and suddenly they were a band with a very striking front line in Moon and Dora, and a taste for trance-like polyrhythms. It took me a few minutes to realise, but at a time when the sweetly saccharine three-minute pop song was very much being fetished, Starspawn made a point of building their music around complex riffs and the extended interplay of their instruments like a premonition of the much grungier indie scene, which was then still to come. And they were loud. 
Moon's guitar pushed constantly at the limits of conventional harmony, while Dora's bass rumbled and roared underneath like a battery of tuned drums. It was a bit rough around the edges, to be sure, but very effective. Brilliant, even. I'd heard nothing like it, and it was during one of the longer instrumental passages towards the end of their set that something happened. Suddenly, the stage opened out, and for a few seconds, the backroom of the pub seemed to fill up with monstrous tree trunks and a glade of bluebells, and out of the greenery, a horned human head rose and stared straight at me with inhuman yellow eyes. Dora saw him too. Leshy, she cried in the language of her Bulgarian ancestors. Leshy, the green one. Her voice was clearly audible, despite the noise, thanks to one of those freak lulls in the music. And then the god in the shrubbery blinked, and we were back in the pub again. And the band played on, as the saying goes. And apart from Dora and myself, and Moon, as I discovered later, no one had noticed anything. Still, for us, it had been very real. Our little soiree had been visited by the spirit of the forest, and if I chose to understand that presence as the great god Pan, I had some precedence for that. For was it not in exactly this kind of red-brick suburb that Arthur Macken and his sensation-loving fellow travellers from the English fin de siècle had located their greatest urban terrors? Of course, all this does rather beg the question of why a woman's band like Starspawn should evoke a god whose traditional form was male. Why not a goddess? Or one of those wild women of the woods they have in France and Poland? Why not a feral maiden? But if you look at the literature, it's nearly always the man who goes wilding, and the woman who is wilded too. So Pan has form. When did you hear of anyone's wife or daughter going native, except as the direst of warnings? We were all children of the male gaze, bastard offspring of patriarchy, mutants. So, we went to Germany. Starspawn and my own rather too arty band, Boris Viander, in the battered old transit van with the driver on the wrong side of the dash to be entirely at ease tearing from gig to gig down the autobahn. Starspawn were on their first tour, while BV, as it turned out, were on their last. But we made it playing a string of 12 community halls and art spaces in 15 days, culminating in a festival in Bielefeld. We didn't really make much money, but that wasn't the point. We were on a journey. At least that's what I thought. BV weren't so sure. By the time we got back to London, it had become clear our viands were cooked, if you'll pardon the obvious turn of phrase, and we split. Artistic and personal differences, as they wrote later in NME, which is how I became Starspawn's producer. Or maybe it's time I introduce myself. Jack. That's me. Blackjack Wicked. Singer, songwriter, guitarist, and general mixing desk whiz. I was a regular one-man renaissance about town back then. Also, a bit of a prat on occasion, but then, who isn't? At the time I was getting to know Moon, I'd made two albums with the Vians. Absinthe Makes a Heart Grow Fonder, for the tiny Brighton-based knocking shop label, and Poil la Perversité for Rough Trade. We'd played a live set on the old grey whistle test, but botched the timing of our one potential peel session, which is why you can't find it on YouTube. I did rather better with my solo album, Forever Wicked. You can find pretty much the whole of that online. Google it. But that was after I'd set up Sempersound, my boutique studio, and became part of the establishment. Back in 1985... They installed us in a borrowed studio 
in another red brick suburb north of Islington called Muswell Hill. It was very grand in a genteel Edwardian kind of way, but also a little run down. It had somehow never been quite fashionable enough to attract the large-scale development money of somewhere like Hampstead, and so retained many of its original features, only much tattier now than they had been, obviously. It also incorporated a striking number of urban parks and woods, all carved out of the original Middlesex forest that had covered the area before the builders arrived in the 1890s. The local authorities had done their best to tame these open spaces, to be sure, adding cinder paths and ponds and cricket pavilions and the like. But even so, it was impossible to visit the parks without running into ancient coppices and medieval earthworks and the debris from abandoned gravel pits. The wildest of the woods had played host to a neo-pagan coven in the 70s, while the largest was constantly awash with nature wardens and archaeologists. Our studio was on the edge of the Muswell Hill Golf Course, which had also once been part of the forest, very near the site where the silent film pioneer R.W. Paul had set up his experimental production facility at the start of the 20th century. It was a quirky choice of location, but actually a good match for Starspawn's more dreamy, improvisational proclivities. The greenery brought out their earthy side, while the ghost of the wildwood resonated with the off-kilter symmetries of the music's inner strangeness. There was a spot just beyond the studio, where someone had planted a circle of beech trees, perhaps half a century ago, judging by the size of them, enclosing a kind of open-air chapel. It reminded me of those mock Doric pagan temples the landed gentry had so liked to build on their country estates in the 1700s, only of leaves of sunlight, and we took to gathering there in the afternoon for rehearsals. Goodness alone knows what the golfers must have made of us. Four punky girls and an ageing rocker in piercings and leather, playing an incongruous acoustic set on the rough behind hole six. Still, a couple of them did start to wave whenever they passed. Val and Bess got quite in the habit of waving back, while Green Street, in his boredom, went off and made friends with the gardeners. We were just about ready to start recording for real, when things went all weird again. It was one of those long summer evenings when the warm golden glow of the sunset is almost enough to convince you that time is an illusion, and I had the bright idea of recording a percussion track by dancing around and hammering on the beech trees. You can still hear the results on Thorn Apple and Cinnamon, the fourth track on Hoping for What is Forbidden to Me, the Starspawn Outtakes album. Green Street bought us some nice wooden staves from the sheds by the clubhouse, and we spent a few minutes tuning them, or at least testing them to get the hang of their resonance, while I set up an extension cable for the microphone. The sky was just turning that peculiar shade of green that precedes darkness when we finally got going. I no longer remember which direction we danced in. Stupid of me, I know, since, as my neo-pagan friends later explained to me, there's a whole world of difference between Jossil and Widdishins. But we were a bunch of 20-something rock musicians, several spliffs short of sobriety, mucking about in the half-dark on a London golf course. It didn't occur to us to pay attention. Besides, Val and Bess were all loved up on the weed, and I was having enough trouble keeping them from slipping away into the bushes. So we danced and drummed, and the tape reels turned. And as the moon rose over the trim green turf and the bunkers, something answered us from the darkness. Cynics might say it was an owl, but it didn't feel like that. And now I've had a quarter century to catch up on my reading. I'd swear it was the fluting song of the goat god and his human acolytes crying, I-O, I-O, to the rattle of tiny stones down the side of a gorge. There was an underlying rhythm to the sound, like the clatter of hooves on turf in the distant greenwood, the pulse of the forest's heartbeat, the call of the master forester's horn, 
and as I listened, I became aware that our view over the golf course was darkening as it rolled back the years and filled up with glade upon glade of monstrous tree trunks. The drumming had stopped by this point, so I glanced to one side and saw that Moon and Dora stood transfixed, as still as tree trunks themselves. Leshy, Dora breathed, barely audible. Leshy. I always thought my grandmother was rambling, but I underestimated her. God bless her memory. What is it? asked Moon, coming suddenly back to consciousness. Where are we? In the old Middlesex forest, I replied. If I had to guess, there were still uncleared medieval woodlands on these hills at the start of the century. Perhaps they want to come back. I paused, staring out at the impossible visitor. A slight breeze blew through the treetops, rustling their leaves suggestively. A fox barked in the middle distance, and in the background I could still hear the original cry of Io! Io! I was completely at a loss what to think. Today, I might be tempted to quote back a few reassuring phrases from some stray psycho-historian, but we didn't have them back then. I felt as if I was seeing treble. 1980s, 1890s, and 1089. The last resurgence of Norman paganism under William Rufus. As so often, the only antecedent that sprang to my mind was Arthur Macken. All I was missing was a stone arrowhead or a black basalt tablet in an unknown alphabet. The Sangral. Look, there's a path, said Dora, pointing. And it was true. A gravel road led off into the trees right across the slope of what had recently been a putting green. Should we go? Before we could stop her, she went, running into the woods in the stark moonlight. Of course, we tried to follow her, or Moon and I did, anyway. But as soon as she crossed into the forest... The moon drifted into a bank of cloud, and the scene started to fade, and Dora with it. Dora! Moon cried desperately, as she tried vainly to reach the path before it was lost in darkness. Dora, come back! But it was too late. The forest and its inhabitants had vanished, and we awoke and found ourselves on the cold hillside with the beginnings of a hangover, the end of an album to record, and no bass player. Not really ideal. But life goes on, and we reconvened the next day with Green Street taking over production duties and myself standing in on bass. And after the initial strangeness had worn off, the album started to shape up. We still played some of Dora's compositions, which was a little weird at first, but actually, in the end, even that went better than expected. It was her absence, the legal and practical implications of her sheer physical absence that almost did for us. Her vanishing became harder and harder to explain as time rolled on. It wasn't such a problem to invent a sick note for her day job, but her parents were another matter. They became more and more insistent when they called the studio, until eventually Moon had to tell them some fib about Moon having a job interview in King Gussie, and promise faithfully that she would call them when she got back, which still left the obvious problem that we had no idea where she was, or when we might expect her. The forest path did not reappear. Pan was apparently content enough to stamp his feet and ravish his acolytes in private. Or whatever it was he did when he wasn't incarnate. Awkward sod. The full moon faded away and started to grow again. And before we knew it, three weeks had passed and Dora's parents were talking about the police. And they didn't mean the band. We'd tried summoning Dora back by hammering on the beech tree ring, but that achieved nothing except a complaint from the golf club after they'd been contacted by the local conservative association. 
They also threatened the studio's owner with a health and safety inspection if he didn't control us, so we gave up on the parkland at the edge of the golf course and stayed indoors, which got us no nearer to locating Dora, of course. It was Green Street, surprisingly, who came to our rescue. We're wasting time, he said one afternoon, as we sat in the studio after an especially unproductive session. We'll never get it done like this. Why don't you all just go for a walk? We looked at each other stupidly, as if waiting for the idea to sink in. Separately, he added, go and pick some buttercups or something. Climb a tree. Terrorise a mallard. Anything. I'll lock up here. Val and Beth didn't need telling twice, and they were out of the door before we could say goat. Coming then, said Moon. I've heard there are some interesting parks and woods around here. And she smiled for the first time in days. So we went. I'm not sure whether she had a plan, or whether she just set off at random, but our path took us down past the pub, and across the road past the public library, into a kind of dell that had been filled with small-scale bungalows in the 1930s. And then we were back up on the opposite hill, by the pavilions of what had evidently once been a Victorian cottage hospital, before the suburbs arrived. The road was silent and twisty, and lined with mature horse chestnut trees. It must have been a country lane back in the day, and it was still remarkably leafy and quiet. It was a completely incongruous find in amongst the parked cars and pebble dash. See, said Moon, Victorian splendour, not ten minutes walk away. Who would have thought it? And looking up at the Georgian-style red brick portico, I had to agree. Only the Victorians had truly had the knack for combining a love of the brick with an almost fetish regard for the past. So, where next, Columbus? I asked. Let's try that way. She indicated a modest row of terraces that started to one side of the hospital, with a suggestive green line of trees at their back. It was a good choice. Turning the corner, we were confronted by a tangle of ancient oak and hornbeam, trailing leaves over the garden walls. The afternoon light was just starting to tip into the golden glow that leads to sunset, giving the trees a rosy crown that reminded me of nothing so much as a halo, while the shadows gathered in their lee like a flock of roosting owls. Pay dirt, said Moon. She pushed past me through a gap in the wall, and I followed. Well, honestly, what else could I do? I had no idea whether this particular trail of breadcrumbs was real or imagined, or a bit of both, but this is what we've been trying to find for weeks, ever since Dora vanished. So we went. Of course we did. Inside, it was darker than on the street, but still lit up with the warm glow of a sun that might have been as ancient as Arcady. The trees grew strong and massive in the thick, clayey soil of the Middlesex Heights, tumbling down towards city limits like the cap of a Neolithic encampment on the downs. A stream wound between them, hemmed in by a dense sward of sedges and meadow flowers, and with a quick nod to each other, we followed. The wood was amazingly quiet, considering we were still in London. There was no traffic noise, no rumble of low-flying aircraft, no echo of children playing in the adjacent gardens. It was easy to believe that we'd been swallowed by history and spat out in another place and time. Eventually, the ground levelled off, and we found ourselves on a floodplain dotted with gnarly torsos of antique willow trees, their knotted boles hunched over the course of the stream like eldritch fishermen casting their lines for the ghosts of another clime. Shoots crowned the stumps of their limbs, like spirit hands reaching out to snare the fleeting centuries. And in their shadows, as we drew nearer, I saw the crumbly outlines of some kind of tumble-down lodge or keep. It wasn't much more than a couple of truncated walls by now, alongside a disorderly pile of masonry, 
all of them overgrown with grass and lichen. But back in the day, it must have been a handsome structure. The nearest willow twisted its roots into the foundations like the feet of a giant bird, almost as if the folk tales of willows walking the woods at night were true, and its branches shaded the walls to create something like a grotto or bower. The pale yellow stone shone in the evening sunlight. This seems a likely place, said Moon, stopping just short of the ruin. I wonder how old this is. That stone over there has never seen a lathe, so it's medieval at least. Perhaps even Roman or Celtic. She frowned. Or older? She seemed less sure of herself all of a sudden, as if surprised at what she was saying and thinking. It's certainly ancient, I nodded, more for the sake of agreeing with her than because I had any opinion. So, where are we? I asked cautiously, almost whispered. I wish I knew, she replied. Somewhere deep in the heart of Middlesex? On a wild goat chase? Perhaps she can tell us. Moon raised a finger to point behind me, and I turned. A figure peeked out of the foliage at the back of the ruined temple, with every appearance of interest, watching the two of us with disconcertingly level amber-gold eyes. A flock of owls sat in the boughs beside her, their ungainly round forms, pale and speckled in the gloaming. They blinked. The woman was tall and handsome, with red hair and a green bodice, and a thick tangle of pendants and necklaces wound into knots at her throat. They swung like a pendulum as she stepped forward, lending her movements the sound of a distant tambour, as if she was accompanied by her own troop of temple dancers. Virgins. Priestesses. Handmaidens. Her long pale arms swung up and out in response to the darting rhythm like willow shoots in the breeze while her finely drawn features composed themselves till they were as regal and delicate as a bird's. She nodded, but she didn't smile. I found her quite intimidating, if truth be told, though Moon's recollection of the whole encounter is quite different. But then it was Moon she was interested in talking to. I was just the help. Of course, it was a little disconcerting, after all we'd been through, to be ignored, but I was no stranger to the role of the session musician. The producer is often more amanuensis than Svengali, so I just tried to behave as if we were still in the studio. A wave of uneasiness swept over the owls as Moon turned to face the newcomer and bowed. The lead owl rustled its feathers audibly, and the others started shuffling on their perches, shifting from foot to foot. Then, one by one, they rose and flapped slowly away, clumsy as overgrown bumblebees as they lurched drunkenly off to the forest. A few of them hooted lugubriously, as if in protest at the disturbance. The woman laughed. "'Oh, come now,' she said, in a voice scarcely less deep and mysterious than those of her feathered friends. "'You must know the owls are not what they seem.' "'They're not?' asked Moon foolishly. I wasn't sure whether she was really interested or whether she was just testing her. "'So what are they, then?' "'Oh, wisdom incarnate,' the green lady replied, without missing a beat. "'Messengers of Hecate.' Avatars of the flower goddess turned predator. Female counterparts of that constantly preapic, deliquent upstart of a goat that you've been having trouble with. Except the owls are much wilder, and smarter, of course, and they haven't had all their senses poisoned by a massive dose of testosterone. You're the musicians, right? she continued. We hear you, out under the beech trees. You keep the rhythm. She waved a loose wrist vaguely towards my side of the ruin. And you sing. "'And you need your friend back?' "'It wasn't a question, but Moon nodded anyway. 
She's in the forest, which is something we already knew, but we didn't argue. Perhaps she had a fondness for stating the obvious. We can help you with that, said the Green Lady. Rescuing damsels is almost a speciality. Just follow our dust. And then she did the most astonishing thing. She flung back her head and screamed, shrieked, screeched like an owl. Her yellow eyes twinkled, and for a moment I had the impression that her ears were getting longer, sprouting tufts of something that looked like fur or feathers, until they stood out like the twin points of a crescent moon glimpsed through the leaves of an ancient beech coppice at midnight, like the imperial diadem of Diana the Huntress, like horns. And then, as she started to unbutton her bodice, I caught a definite flash of feathers, silky white on her belly, tawny brown as they spread to her wings. Though somehow, for a while, she had hands as well. Like the partially metamorphosed figures of one of those stolen Italian goddesses you find in the dusty corners of Victorian country houses, captured in its pale, mottled stone. Her body rippled one last time, almost as if she was preening, though at the same time it had something of the quality of a heat devil on a sunbaked cart track at the height of the harvest. And then, all of a sudden, we found ourselves confronted by an unusually large owl, standing in a jumbled pile of the green lady's clothing, though bizarrely still adorned in her bangles and gigaws. The owl winked at us suggestively, switching eyes in a complex pattern, as if she was trying to tell us something in some kind of perverse woodland semaphore, but the meaning eluded me. Then she hooted and flapped away into the trees. Then we followed. Well, honestly, what else could we do? The section of the forest into which she had led us was darker and deeper than anything we had seen so far that evening. The oaks clung to the crumbly slopes at the edge of the water meadows like thousand-year-old griffins, their massive roots twisted and inescapable and sinewy as talons. The beaches were as round and barrel-chested as the rooks of an antique chess set and in between the imposing stella of the tree-trunks, a merry brook laughed and gurgled its way through banks of wild iris and marigold. The sun hung low, fat and golden, ever nearer the distant summer horizon, and in the background, for the first time since we had set out from the studio, I could hear the drumming of hooves on bare stone and greensward. We were getting closer then. As if to confirm my suspicions, a snatch of music evidently played on a wooden flute or syrinx, came floating down from the upper end of the brook. A small cascade of pebbles rolled down the stream and tumbled to a halt in the pool by my feet. I could feel my heart beating like a torrent. Finally, I sighed, finally we were approaching the goat god's Arcadian encampment, or what passed for an Arcadian encampment in the age-old forest of Middlesex. At that, the owl swooped in to land, and suddenly she was a woman again, still festooned with pendants and necklaces, but clothed only in a faint down of feathers, brown and white, like a beech grove in moonlight, like the labyrinthine tangle of a giant, immemorial briar. She turned, and I saw her human face topped by tufted ears, and below that the strangely hybrid form of her body, and I gasped, for she looked exactly like the claw-footed Lilith of Sumerian mythology, half woman, half wild thing, and never quite what our human morality thought she ought to be, I glanced down at the claw marks she had left in the dust as she skipped forward, and to my astonishment they looked like perfectly formed pentacles with the point at the rear. People tended to assume, at least in the admittedly trashy books that formed my entire working knowledge of, that the pentacle was meant to represent the stylized head of a goat, 
but it seemed it had a second and more feminine significance, that the magical power of wildness and fivefold hedony was not Pan's alone. Oh, she's beautiful, cried Moon. She's terrifying, I corrected, rich and dark and passing strange. I feel as if I'd taken a sip from the wrong bottle. Or a different one anyway, Moon nodded. A concentrated filter of owl light. It certainly makes a change from that cheap red rot gut preferred by the other side. Less irksome the morning after, too, I'd imagine. You still think there's going to be a morning after? I asked. Of course there is. There's always a morning after. Just not the one you're expecting. You may have to close the furnace door and rub your eyes free of fairyland, but morning always follows the evening. Dark and white and icy as the crackle of reverb through an empty speaker. And then I saw it. In the trees behind her, another figure, emerging from the enveloping foliage like an apparition, like a ghost. I could see at once that the creature, whatever it was, had been human once, though it had evidently been some time since it had gone feral. Its face was stained and filthy, brown with grime and green with the juice of leaves. Its hair was thick and matted, while its clothing hung in rags around its skinny body, like a web of tattered clothes and blackness, offering tantalising glimpses of bare flesh underneath. I couldn't tell whether it was male or female. Its arrival was accompanied by a distinct odour of mud and pheromones, a musky, earthy smell, more animal than human, as if we were being approached by a wild beast and not someone we might have met at a party once back in the day, in our old life, before, on the other side. And then the creature spoke. Moon? Jack? Its voice was gravelly, as if its vocal cords had got out of the habit of uttering anything but animal noises and inarticulate growling. Moon, what are you doing here? Dora! Moon cried, rushing forward to embrace her, despite her filthy condition. Dora? I repeated, my mind in a daze. But it was her. I could see the resemblance now, under the layers of dirt and forest detritus. She had some scratches on her arms, and she had lost a lot of weight. But otherwise, she looked to be in one piece. Mr. P likes them like this, said another voice at my shoulder. I turned, and found that the owl lady had come up behind me. Lilith. Hecate. The spirit of the trees. Whatever she was, really. He likes them to go native. He gets off on it somehow. Mr. P? I asked stupidly. The goat? He had this idea he wants to breed a new species of moss maiden out of feral townies and party girls, wayward artists and bohemians. This part of the wood is full of them. You can't hoot in a holly bush without flushing some lost soul out of the undergrowth. It can get very annoying sometimes. I think it's the transformations that actually interests him. The knowledge that he has taken someone young and pretty and civilised and stripped her down to her animal core, her wild essence, simply by whistling, flushed out the ghosts in her germline, the ancient and terrible germline of the primeval grandmothers of Ur. And then he moves on. She paused and peered back into the wood, her head cocked to one side in a strangely bird-like posture, as if listening for something. You should take her home now, before he turns up and makes a fuss, she continued. He doesn't actually want her any more, but he's never one to miss the opportunity to defend his property rights, his proprietary strains. He's so enthralled to his member, he can't help himself, poor lamb. Kid, that is. Hormones, you know. 
Somehow it all seems to be his time of the month. And then she did an almost familiar thing. She flung back her head and screamed, shrieked, screeched like an owl. Again. I had a distinct sense of deja vu, but before I had time to reflect on this, the tree started to ripple and change around us, and we found ourselves under a wild service tree in a quite different wood in the last remnants of the summer twilight. I recognised the spot. We were on the site of the medieval ditch and bank at the back of Highgate Woods, another of the several scattered remains of the Middlesex Forest. The woods were enjoying emptying out in the approaching dusk, which was probably no bad thing in view of the state Dora was in. So we took her home and cleaned her up, and eventually she returned to the studio and Starspawn's first album, Cat People and Feral Maidens, was the result. Of course, Dora was always a little strange after she came back, a little spacey, a little absent. But reading the folklore, that seems to be about normal for someone who has returned from fairyland, especially after such an extended visit. And at least we hadn't all aged horribly or died while she was away, as seems to be the case in so many of these stories. No one would wish on her the fate of a latter-day Dora Van Winkle. The record, and in those days we really did still make records, was a minor hit on the indie scene, and Starspawn graduated from the concert listings to the front page of the NME. Their cover shoot of Moon, in a purple Tibetan smock, with her cherry-pink guitar slung loosely to one side, like the witch's wand in The Magic Circle by J.M. Waterhouse, became a classic, reproduced on pirated shoulder bags and T-shirts for several years afterwards. The band's label was pleased with them, and over time they made three more CDs, not counting their greatest misses and an outtakes compilation. I stuck with them until about halfway through the second, but then Moon took over. Eventually, she built herself her own studio and set herself up as a producer. We were all doing it back then. Hers was in a converted farmhouse in Norfolk, and it came with its own stand of silver birch and a stream and a view out over the purple flowering heaths of the Breckland kind of like real world, in miniature. She did well for herself, but then she was always a smart woman. Dora moved in with her pretty much as soon as the building work was finished. Green Street, too. The three of them still live there, in a sweet little Victorian cottage next door. I'm not sure of their sleeping arrangements. And really, it's none of my business, so I've never asked. I produced records for the next twenty years or so, but then I got bored, so I took a long, slow trip around the world. To my amazement, the travel book I worked up out of my diaries became a bestseller, and I still draw a nice income from what I got for the film rights, though in typical Hollywood fashion no film was ever made. For all that, though, I never quite forgot my night in the forest and what it did to us. And though the path never opened up for me again in later years, and honestly I can't say I'm sad about that, I do wonder about Dora sometimes. She went much deeper than the rest of us, and there was something quite seductive, even addictive, about the other world. I can imagine it could be quite habit-forming, and addiction, as we all know, has a way of coming back to haunt you. The Breckland, like the Middlesex Forest, is another truly archaic piece of countryside. It was the original home of Queen Boudicca and the Iceni, and the weird coastal tree-stump circle of Woodhenge was found on the Norfolk shore just a few miles away. Its sandy heaths are still dotted with the remains of Celtic homesteads, Roman roads and antique woodlands, while the Pedder's Way, one of the best-preserved ancient tracks in southern Britain, is just across the fence at the back of the studio. 
I can't believe that the other world can be as far on a moonlit night. And Moon has retired there. Like that cliché of the music press. The reclusive, middle-aged rock star, shut away on her country estate, where she can indulge her every whim, with a small group of her closest friends, out of sight of both the police and the public. Times were. She'd have had to be male, of course. But we live in a postmodern age, and even in fairyland, the spirit of the forest has been wilded. Lilith is queen of the night, and the shriek-owls rule the rooftops, while Pan lurks in the bushes, playing silly love games, faintly and dolefully. He's starting to look a little tired these days, poor lad, though he won't admit it. It's as if he doesn't know the Arcadian centuries have been and gone, and the woods have a new song to sing. And like the owls in the trees, we're all going to have to learn to dance on a Sunday. I'll be looking forward to it. And I'll be expecting to see all of you, my listeners, at the party, in green and purple, and fur and feathers, the livery of the new millennium, in hedony and agape, in love. So, dear listeners, if you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from you, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes or other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. And please consider making a donation on the District of Wonders Patreon page so that we can keep the podcast up and running. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And please be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will be dealt with by four young women with big amps and an attitude. My personal thanks, as always, go to Gary Dowell, my editor, and our audio engineer, Mark Sanfardino. I'm off to go and catch a plane. I'll catch you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.